Welcome to the Headshaver Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO at Next Gen Agri International, where we've got livestock managers to get the best out of their stock. I want to take this opportunity to thank our friends at MSD Animal Health and Allflex for sponsoring Head Shepherd again this season. And I'm also excited to introduce our mates at Heineken as brand new sponsors of the show. MSD and Allflex, or perhaps better known as People's Animal Health in Australia, offer one of New Zealand Australia's largest livestock growing portfolios with a comprehensive suite of animal health and management products connected through identification, traceability, and monitoring solutions. Like us, they see how the wealth and breadth of information born out of this podcast can help them and their farming clients achieve their mission of the science of healthier animals. Heineken will need a little introduction to our audience, a market leader and one-stop shop for wool harvesting and animal fibre removal, together with an expanding range of agricultural products and inputs. The Heineken name is synonymous with quality, reliability and precision. The Heineken team have a deep understanding of livestock agriculture, backed by Swiss engineering and a family business dedicated to manufacturing the best. It's fantastic to have both of these sponsors supporting us in bringing Head Shepherd to you each week. And now it's time to get on with this week's episode. Welcome back to Head Shepherd and welcome into 2024. Awesome to have you listening along and hoping for this year to be a, a great one here at Head Shepherd. Lots of changes happening to, to make it better, hopefully. We're starting off this year with a colleague of ours, Jamie Ramage of Ramage Royal. Uh, many people have seen Jamie out and about or on social media. He's pretty hot on, on socials, but he's been involved in the sheep industry for a long time. And uh, yeah, we have a good chat about maternal efficiency and, and a range of things. So hopefully... You'll enjoy this, number one for the year, 2024, and we'll we'll be in your ear for the rest of this year. Cheers. Welcome to Head Shepherd, Jamie Ramage. Thanks for the opportunity to come on board, Ferg. Excellent, Ramo. The, uh, we've had a fair bit to do with each other over the last little while, so this could be pretty casual chat. Apologies if we get out of, out of line, listeners, but I'm sure we'll We'll be able to add some value as, as we go along. I guess we might, as we do, we might just start with, I guess, your background, how you ended up in agriculture and passionate about genetics generally. No worries, mate. Well, I, I suppose the, um, I was born and raised on a property um, near Violetown in northeast Victoria or north-central Victoria. Um, um, my mum and dad, Donnie and Barb, and with my brother Adam, we um, run a mixed farming operation or Dad and our family did run a mixed farming operation. Um, it was a pretty uh, complex sort of a system that was set up to um, manage risk and um, that meant that we had quite a few enterprises, bit of a, a bit of a good grounding, I suppose, for understanding sheep and cattle and wool sheep and meat sheep. And we also um, ran a pole dorset stud. For mostly for our own use, but also to supply the um, local neighbours and so forth. Excellent. So, yeah, similar grounding to me, probably a bit of a menagerie by the sound of it. Well, I'm making that up. I'm putting words in your mouth, but we had yeah lots of different things going on at home, and mainly caused by me and my brother being keen on breeding stuff, which didn't help particularly. But I guess recent times, heavily involved across well, in the last couple of decades, involved in a range of different breeding enterprises and I think if anyone watches you on social media see hashtag maternal efficiency mentioned fairly often the uh what does maternal efficiency mean to you and and why do you reckon it's important well that I suppose um one of the things that dad allowed me to do um pretty early on was get involved in the polar polar stud and you know 
um, until I was in that space, I probably knew that ewes and, and cows had calves and lambs, but not how different they can be depending on what sire and what dam. And um, we, I, I got to about 19, I think it was, had the opportunity to go and purchase some um, AI sires and try them over the breeding program, which had been a probably a pretty typical um, inbred pole dorset flock that then outcrossed with performance genetics. And even back in the early 90s, we had um, it was very profound to see the difference in the lambs. They were the lambs were a kilo to a kilo and a half heavier at birth, um, and performed just out of the box in comparison to you know going to buy the ram that had won the show ribbon and using that type of methodology to try and make good sheep. Um, you know, I've also got taught about structure and how to cut horns off pole dorsets that shouldn't have had horns and all of that type of stuff. But <laughs> I suppose understanding that the U was what drove the performance and production on the farm rather than thinking it was all about rams also um, was instilled into me by Dad and that, that AI experience that sent me down a path of wanting to find out, well, what more can you do? Yeah, excellent. And, yeah, I guess... I guess as you've gone through that career, it's sort of, um, yeah, I guess we all, when we've had plenty of chats, get pretty excited about some of the opportunities these days. And I guess when we started, or when genetic systems like land planning started, there was a few traits, those growth traits and, and muscle and fat sort of came into it. But now we've got any number of traits that we we're looking at and makes it all the more exciting, makes it a little bit harder, but it, well, a little bit different, I suppose. It's sort of easier in some ways because you can almost have a breeding way for for everything and as we move towards structural traits well, we will have everything covered pretty much and um yeah i guess that experience early days is something that i really cherished as well getting seeing performance animals that have been selected based on their performance and how the gap between them and the rest and i think that is a, a major uh, opportunity for the industry and, and one of the things that sort of drives me to do better i guess is is once you see that, you can't unsee that and you kind of get really and you're, you're almost the addiction kicks in not very long after seeing that the power of genetics. Well, yeah, and I suppose in, in my experience, like the drift was towards um, understanding the lamb industry really well. I got frustrated with the conservatism that was inside the Merino game, even though we were running lots more Merinos than what we were pole dorsets or, or crossbreed sheep at the time. And... I, I I can remember talking to a DPI staff member at Rutherglen one day and I said, who's the best land producer in Australia? I want to go and copy off them. And um, they they said, John Keeler. So that was, I got in the car and got on the phone and talked to John Owen. was very fortunate to get a, a, a really good grounding of understanding the power of pulling together multiple breeds um, and selecting them for maternal traits and, um, you know, trying to create that ultimate you that wasn't the cold um, merino you joined to a border lester. It was something that was perfect um, purpose. Um, it was bred with a purpose. And then I suppose um, from there it was, well, I wanted to help um, other farmers understand the the benefits or the opportunities that were in self-replacing maternal meat sheep 
had a couple of trips to New Zealand where I went and looked at what I thought were, you know, even better or larger programs to try and get some perspective and then come back and worked a lot with particularly Jono um, working on getting into shearing sheds and explaining the power of um, of algorithms and how they could be used in maternal programs and how we didn't really need the the borderlistic concept. If we had a, a purpose-bred view, we could make it do pretty much what we wanted it to. Yeah, and that's been a, I guess, since those days, it's been a shift. There's obviously still the borderless to first cross you market out there, but very much eroded compared to the, yeah, I guess, 20 years ago where it was sort of often now called to buy your first cross shoes and, and then buy after after Remo's dad to buy a couple of pot horse at Rams and, and away you go. That was sort of the standard land production system, I suppose, in Australia and certainly has evolved in many different directions since then. The uh, And all of them, yeah, are a, are a more efficient system and, and I guess that's uh, not, not saying a, not saying anything against the first cross shoes have served lots of people very well and produced some fantastic lambs, but end of the day there is risk in that when you're always having to buy those those maternal genetics in. Um, some people it works, some people it doesn't. And but the bigger I guess what we see is the more scale you've got, the more you need to control what you can control and, and your maternal genetics are a big part of that. And so if you're just always at the kind of roulette table trying to buy those ewes, um, it's it's a struggle. If you're running a few hundred sheep then it makes sense to to buy in those maternals probably and you've just you've just got a, a bit of capital depreciation and and then you're you're turning out you're turning out lambs but once you get it at scale it's certainly a lot of value in in a closed flock or you know driving your own maternal performance certainly one of the things that i suppose we saw a few hiccups in the wool job late 80s early 90s um a lot of people that had perhaps never run prime lambs before were open to the idea of moving into um, composite-type sheep, particularly in the Western District of Victoria. And I think there was a, a lot of people come and tried and didn't enjoy it too much, and then others come in and thought that it was really good. But the I think the, um, the maternal um, traits and the performance of those animals, um, enough people found that there was one that they could buy those um, composite use at a, at a discount to the first cross you market, which meant that it was, they were more trading one on a, a discounted, slightly discounted article that performed really well. But when it comes to doing the self-replacing job themselves, they were then, um, not at the mercy of what that, um, what the top priced pen at Maricourt makes, but they were at their own cost of production or that they were driving you know, the the dollars on, and performance of their animals um, more so for the lamb industry. And, yeah, there was some certainly some hiccups around skins and, you know, um, processes that were uncomfortable with skins that were on more open at the time and it was work that we needed to do to make sure that they did have functional skins on them. Um, yeah, but I suppose the journey... Over time, we were a bit crazy at when in the early days, but it sort of proved to be a, a system that can work pretty well in, in not everywhere, but lots lots of parts of Australia. I often think it's, and maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but um, I often think it's amazing to think back. Like now you just sort of think, oh, well, there's heaps of composite sheep in Western Victoria, but when I first moved there in 
98, I'm going to say. Uh, there was, yeah, it was very much the big wall bales and, and like still like a lot of people reeling from the late 80s or early 90s when after the, the wool reserve price crash. Uh, but yeah, well, I think we've, it's easy to forget how, how much change actually has occurred. And we often sort of in this, in the game of, Farmers don't change or whatever, but there's been massive evolution in terms of what breeds of sheep are out there now, and and yeah, the composite is is very much a a mainstay of a big chunk of the lamb industry now in in Australia. It's interesting considering, I guess now we're living in New Zealand where where the composite probably isn't as strong anymore. Uh, sort of almost have been and gone, and sort of backed a lot of people back to to the Romney. And in that time, the Romney has changed massively and can sort of has moved on from the one good lamb status through to sort of scanning over two hundred percent and uh, yeah, different, very different beasts than what it was, and probably has probably has either through, through osmosis or planning picked up a few of those genes from the um, from the composite uh, throughout those those periods as well. But yeah, interesting how how much change there has been in the last couple of decades or. or yeah, that, 25 years. That competition's interesting, you know, like the um, to see breeds and it happened to the pole orsets when the white suffix started. Um, it happened to a degree to the um, first cross U market when composites really got going. Um, I was excited to be involved in bringing Highlanders out of New Zealand many years ago and certainly of recent times some of those really good Romney genes that have been utilised probably mostly south of Hamilton Highway in Victoria, but it's created a, a, a some really good pressure on the performance of, of the of those ewe flocks and the tools that the farmers have got are great. And if we could have taken a snapshot from the Hamilton sale yards yesterday and gone back 20 years before or maybe even 15 years, like the the animals would be completely different. Yeah. Yeah, no, very much so. The it's interesting, I guess, how we how perceptions have had to change over time. You talked about skins before, and I certainly have memories of a good mate of mine who probably won't be listening, but um, I'm going to interview him soon. On with him with a fire hose over the top of his lambs before he'd send him into Hamilton to make him look a bit sappier. Yeah. Um, he used to overdo it a bit, and people wondered how, on a blue sky day, he got a shower of rain on his sheep. But the um, there is a lot of that sale yard is it's a blunt tool for price setting, I suppose. It's a big part of big feature of Australian ag still, but I guess in New Zealand it's it's very much a minor part, everything's sort of direct to processor and but I think the more we see value add happening and well I guess eating quality becoming important and those sort of things and people focusing on direct to processor, we're gonna yeah, I mean some of the traits like openness of skins when like we need real price signals about whether that whether that's a, a perception difference or that is real in terms of the value of that skin or is it is it just saying well it's not a second cross lamb so therefore it's can't be any good yeah and and i think you're i think you're right Ferg. like i've spent a little bit of time working in supply chains and and the and the thing that i came away from that experience was that there's lots of friction around the transaction and that the people uh, who add value don't always get paid. And my hope 
is, and I've put my head in in the noose a few times trying to find a way to um, have the right people get the um, right reward, but also that the information is shared in a transparent fashion so that people can modify what they're doing to better shoot the better suit their um, consumer or their customer, which is not always the the person chasing the lamb chop around a plate. It's quite often somebody inside the the uh, you know quite an elaborate supply chain that's that is adding value. But when you're behind a farm gate, lots of times you don't understand or respect that. Yeah, definitely. If we sort of move forward to you know, I guess recent times and and think about Ramage Ramage rural business and I guess the opportunity in in the sales in the genetic space. I don't know how many times I have the conversation with breeders that tell me that they they love breeding stuff, but they're really terrible at marketing. And I think that's a that is one of the one of the issues. And almost yeah, there's lots of people out there who, who are really passionate about breeding stuff, but probably are then left trying to sell a secret. And so there's certainly an opportunity there for people to, I guess, tell their story better make sure people are aware of their product. Uh, I think as we see this shift going from, I guess, uh, 20 years ago where breeding bees were a bad bad word to today where there are, there's less circles where that's true and, and more circles where the where the people actually value that information. There's, there's, this, there's a big space there to, I guess, help bring a lot of transparency to the whole genetic game and through making sure people tell their story properly. Yeah, I think, you know, like um, my my journey in sales and marketing and communicating either on my own behalf or for clients is is about um, being really clear on your values. Um, I check them morning and night because there's when you're involved in sales, there's always those little shades of grey that you need to be really careful of. And, you know, when I'm interviewing a a Ramage Rural client or a or a, a RAM client um, that I'm dealing with. My my first first thing I assume is that I'm wrong and they're right and my job is to ask questions. And a part of that process of asking questions is trying to drill into what are their dreams and aspirations and where's the gap from where they are now to where they've got to go. Not trying to approach a sale or a marketing proposition from what's in my paddock and then who do I fit up with these sheep? You know, like, and that's the, I think that's the example that a lot of people, uh, and rightly so, are suspicious of salespeople. But um, if, you're, if you're able to move your um, thinking just a little higher and, and try and serve, um, as um, you know, somebody like Sinjin Craner would talk about, you know, the 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 need to serve people um, is the thing that you should stay focused on, and that's what I try and do. You know, like how do I serve the client? What do they need? Not what have I got to sell? Yeah. So you do get around a lot, and you're pretty hot following what's happening in the in the markets. It's been it's an interesting period of time i suppose 2023 moving into 2024 when this goes out we'll be into 2024 and uh yeah it's it's amazing what a bit of rain will do to to markets but i guess if we higher level what what sort of shifts are we seeing in 
in the kind of animals that people are thinking about breeding today that maybe wasn't in their his mindsets ten years ago. What are the what are the new things coming into the game? Well, look, I, I I've seen the shedding. I've seen the shedding um, industry change a lot. Um, really, in my view, a really blunt tool, um, and that might be contentious to some people. But I think the 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 big from a big picture perspective, um, and the way that social media and sales and marketing has evolved over time, we've got to take the opportunity to try and listen better to where community expectation is moving with things like provenance of food. So, you know, how does it get to my plate and who's involved with that? And a, and a, and a significant part of that are, are animal welfare traits. And I know, obviously, that Next Gen Agri and yourself, you know, your, your career is littered with making animals better everywhere, Ferg, but um, what we need to, as a broader industry, is to understand that animal welfare is real and that we can actually be profitable and tick those boxes and do a really good job on farm. But just like in the stud and the sales um, part, we need to become profoundly better at communicating that to the broader population and, and our public and our customers, I think. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we had Hayley Perbrick on recently and and she's obviously into into that field as well more from a from an environmental standpoint than a welfare standpoint but but all uh all equal and i guess yeah uh, the opportunity for us to to get outside of i guess we're, we're pretty good at talking to each other we, we kind of we were very good at preaching the converted and and making sure each of us and then arguing i suppose within our own little bubbles and stuff about like we kind of get and that's one of the greatest concerns i suppose it's not it's kind of okay. Well, it's bad enough that we're not communicating our story very well, but when we're infighting, that's sort of just anyone that does poke their heads in just sees an industry that's having a bit of a crack at each other. It's not, not ideal either. But, yeah, and I think we, we do have an opportunity and obviously we'd, it would have taken millions of dollars of marketing budget to do anything probably even as recently as 10 years ago. But now if you've got a phone and you're half handy, you can – Build yourself a profile and 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 tell stories, and I think we have to, yeah. The more sort of advocates out there, the the better we go. The um, and I think well, we we know that we we work with great people. There's a we work in great locations with great people with great animals. So there's there's no shortage of storage. And I think as I was talking to Haley about, there's often people just are blind to blind to how special their day is almost like because. You get up and there's flies and heat and there's sand and dust or whatever. Whereas someone who's walking down Burke Street in Melbourne who's going to the same office job they've had for the last three years or four years or whatever that that would actually wouldn't mind a bit of sun on their back and and or seeing someone with a bit of sun on their back. So um, yes. yeah, often I find myself on farm taking a photo that the owner of that farm or a staff member on that farm would have driven past or walked past ten thousand times and not taken the photo because it wasn't didn't look special and I think we need to remember that the people we want to communicate with aren't don't get to see what we get to see I suppose yeah and, and I think um, you know at a higher level um, we probably uh, we hear the waffle that comes out of um, uh, politicians mouths 
we there's a there's a cynicism that's um, really disappointing. But I think for me, there's a there's a massive amount of hope and opportunity in our in our industry based back on just how good the people are that are involved in the game and and often and I I, I say this uh, quite regularly that. The, I, I, I have the benefit of being able to move around Australia and meet with a lot of really good um, sheep and cattle farmers and they're limited by the wire around the um, boundary fence line that they have and what what they have to be able to do is transverse that wire and get off the farm and, and have their say and and make sure that, that people that are leading their advocacy organisations are getting the message because often it's not it's not the individual person that can make a profound difference with a viral post on Twitter. It's you know these people that are our advocates are actually on social media. They want people to like them. Um, there's there's plenty of opportunity to talk to them by direct message and get your message and your disappointment or your excitement across to them. Yeah, we'll just switch gears quickly and. Talk about your sabbatical when you ran a motel for a while. The, um, <laughs> when you dropped out of ag for a bit, well, you're still heavily interested in around ag, but obviously we're 24/7s going nuts on running a motel. What did that? I mean, and running a motel through through lockdowns. What did that teach you about humans and and yourself? Well, I th- I th- well. Uh- we we went into we went into the into the motel game off the back of my my brother Adam having plenty of experience in the motel industry. It wasn't a flippant choice, but it was off the back of success internal family succession planning and and my boys wanting to do things other than chase sheep around a paddock. Um, and Jody and I said, right, what can we do? Um, so it was pretty strange, probably strange for a lot of people. To be running marketing for a sheep stud, but also behind a desk inside a motel, um, managing staff and customer expectations and a front-facing business. It was um, it was challenging in the sense that you you are really working. We were both working hundred plus hours a week. You get to about one and a half a year. It's really hard to keep a smile on your face. But the most profound thing. Um, that my brother advised me around and being a business accountant, you probably think it'd be to do with money, but it wasn't. It was the biggest change that you can make to any business is a smile at the front desk. And we made sure that we looked at our client base. There was a significant number of those that were travellers that knew which room at the motel they liked to stay in. They knew how they wanted to be treated. I know they wanted to check out it. And an exact time, it was very specific. And if we wanted to look after them um, and have them stay as repeat customers, we needed to cater to that business. And what we did was we made sure that we had a smile on our face and a cold beer ready to be handed over to the sales rep or the farmer or the truck driver or whoever it was that was coming to stay. You know, it's just basically being friendly. Yeah, yeah. That's probably how we ended up friends, weren't you? Handed me a cold beer at your motel. It was <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, mate. Absolutely, very, diff- 
pretty easy to buy a bloke like me. But yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, yeah. I think those little things are a massive part of business success that some people get, and other people, other people, you wonder how the hell they ended up in a public facing role because they're not very good at it. But the um, it's, it was funny. It was funny, like the the um, the time inside the motel. Like I'd always been somebody that I didn't like school, whatever's wrong inside here, um, didn't like conventional learning. And I I learned that I needed to continue to learn if I wanted to be any good at anything. So I needed to work it out for myself. So I've, been, I've tried to do a lot of different sales roles so that I could get some perspective and understanding. But spending time in the motel and, and the advent of audiobooks, um, because I'm a poor reader, uh, and need to need to read things like estimated breeding days. I probably had to read them ten thousand times before I started to actually get it stuck into my head how I could read them. Is that I'm on a journey, not a chasing a destination. And self improvement was um, what I was about. So, like yourself, I I run. I stretch, I try and look after my diet, I, I want to be a good example to my kids and I also um, very much think it's important that you find a, a cause and one of the causes that I've had throughout my life is being involved with um, football administration um, and sport and, and helping um, young people um, get the opportunity to express themselves on the sporting field and it's been it's been. 30 odd years that I've been involved with boards and the like, and it's been great fun, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, I guess that the community involvement you get from those sort of roles and sort of something that uh, now, with, yeah, not something I get directly involved with, but I'm never in the same place often enough. But <laughs> the, uh, but certainly you see those people that are pretty much holding a community together in, in those sporting clubs because that's the, the place yeah, where people meet yeah. and people interact. and absolutely really uh, really very important roles in in our culture a quick interruption here to remind you of head shepherd premium and our consulting services at next gen agri international if you love this podcast and want to hear more of them visit the hub.nextgenagri.com and sign up for head shepherd premium and get an extra podcast each week if you're listening to this and thinking you really do want to maximize the genetic gain of your livestock and feel more confident around the decisions you're making on farm then send me an email at mark at nextinagri.com and we'll get in touch and see see where that takes us. It's a it's it's an exciting business for me because it has three elements. It's got the the terminal program that's very focused on on um, survival and early growth rate and making sure that we're that we've got a solution for those people that are looking for a terminal ram to for their overall um, sheep farming system. Um, the, the maternal, um, which is, you know, highly fertile, um, is an extraordinary sheep that, you know, when it first came out from New Zealand, it was probably a little bit too lean. Um, you know, with the help of your good self, we've been able to put a little extra fat in there, um, get some, um, good, um, connection into the Australian sheep breeding, um, Game so that we can accurately describe the animals, and the the exciting part of, or the super exciting part for me at at Probreed is the 
is the Flying Cross program or our Highlander or Program Plus, sorry, um, program where we're um, pulling down micron and, and creating a really functional Flying Cross sheep. 22 to 24 micron that has lots of lambs that grow really fast and ticks all the boxes from an animal welfare perspective. Yeah, and I think that that particular shape type, the pluses, and there's a few breeders sort of putting some sort of combination of merinos and composites together around the place. And, yeah, I think I guess I've gone on record a few times saying, yeah, they have fine wool or none of it, and I think like that will potentially play out. There's certainly some specialist roles of what specialist very good maternal sheep, Romney and composites are gonna be hard to knock off, but ultimately ultimately there's that's the challenge really is to get these other either a sh- shedding sheep or a or a fine wool composite that's that has a fleece value that's sufficient to cover the extra costs of growing wool or having wool versus and yeah, and that income stream that kind of says, well, rather than have a triplet, let's have a let's have a fleece on their back and um and go, or, or maybe it's a, that's an end rather than an all, uh, and that it depends on how we go. The yeah, it's an interesting challenge, and it's one that we relish, and something that we sort of pretty much have wandered into in New Zealand. It was really the first conversation I had before I moved to New Zealand was was our research were asking because I knew about the New Zealand Transformation Project, which is what New Zealand Reno had had funded, and they were asking about the. Uh, yeah, I guess that opportunity to bring farmal into or bring a different farmal sheep together, and I think, yeah, I guess being the eternal optimist, I think you can always always do that, and that really it starts from like a race car it starts with the wheels, probably the um, the the feet are a, a major component. We build them and we build up from there. But I think yeah, that area of of breeding is something that's got a lot of potential in that, and uh, like the Pro Breed Plus and and the equivalents in other other flocks around Australia there. This, I reckon we'll be putting some pretty cool shape together in in time. It's it's interesting, like the the like to watch the the shedding programs that are that are um, seem to be gathering pace at the moment. Um, I think that's fantastic because it it builds that competition thing into the marketplace. People have to make conscious decisions about what they run on their farm. And for me, the Plus program is the best thing in probably fifteen or twenty years. Um, because we've got that competition in the lamb industry and we've got a tool now, you know, I want to serve my clients. If somebody comes to me with a 30 that's running a 32 micron flock, one cross of the, of the pluses and you're going to have sheep that are under 30 micron, you're going to be, you know, at least cost positive, um, from your shearing enterprise rather than, um, losing out. Um, and for people who are, have merinos that are that are unproductive or are not as productive as they could be. They're a very good top cross in that program. So yeah, I'm super excited. Yeah, I think there's yeah these various streams that are all moving and uh, yeah, and I think what, how you said it was is exactly right. The competition's a good thing. We need different breeds, different breeders. That people can make their choice about whether they want to have a shearing shed or they don't, and whether they yeah, whether that they want to be that. The risks that come around having wool and stuff, or yeah, or they want to embrace it and, and build that value, and that's yeah, that's going to be. There's always going to be people doing different things and, and all these different. But I guess they're yeah, the options thirty years ago were kind of 
yeah, you had sort of Marinos and Border Leicesters and Pole Dorsets pretty much, and that was kind of it, and a few few other things around the edges. But now it's uh, yeah, a lot, lot more choice and a lot of people doing great things. I guess the thing that brings all of our discussion together really is is that data piece and and making informed decisions rather than and that's what's allowed all of this to happen really it's genetic gain if we had if the romney was still doing so one good lamb with a fluffy head and and growing slowly then then there would be none of them in new zealand and and if the merino would had stayed at what it was good at there'd be there'd be less of them around as well like there's there's lots of the the genetic change is what's keeping people in the game and i think I think the more we people understand that, and more we embrace that, the the better our industry goes. It, it probably the, the most frightening aspect of of what we do is is the amount of opportunity that gets left on the table every year with people making uninformed decisions about their genetics and and just doing what they've always done, or or you know, or just not taking that that extra time to to be that lifetime learner. I suppose to say, well. What I know now isn't what I'm always going to know, and that's what we really need in our game is to always consider what what's possible. And I think probably from definitely from starts with us in terms of we know what we know, but we also know that we're going to learn every every day, every time we're in a new mob of sheep, we're learning something about what's going on. But I think one of the things that excites me about when I travel around the countryside, I can almost pick a next gen agri client out when I drive in the gate and start asking questions around planning and they actually have a plan. Um, and I think a lot of people are very reactive to either season or financial um, situations and and quickly chase something that's not in their own best interests. And if we look at the, you know, human nature is a powerful thing and we look at the, you know, the disastrous forecasts that we had back in January and February and the impact that that had on industry, you know, it was like I'm, I'm just disgusted that that, that was um, something that happened to us but we've got to learn from it. You know, like throwing stones at the, at the Weather Bureau isn't the answer. It's understanding that, you know, none of this is, is 100% exact. You know, you need, to, you need to have a plan and you need to stick to it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, particularly that around around weather forecasts. And I guess if we start football analogies, I mean, you got to you got to play the game that's in front of you. There's no point thinking about how that team played last time or no. or how you thought it was going to play out in the change room before it. Once you're on the field and and it's it's a different day, it's a different, it's colder than you thought, or it's wetter than you thought, or whatever. Then the, you've got to play the ball in front of you, and that's I think we have to be. Yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah, and I wrote recently in our newsletter about momentum, and I think we're very good when yeah, momentum's a massive thing in our game. If it, either whether it's going bad or going going really well, but everyone gets on the same a snowball, and it just grows and grows. And it's this yeah, we have to be, and this yeah, this certainly me included. We have to uh, remember to get up each day and and challenge what we know and challenge what people are telling us, and just and try and see the wood from the trees. Yeah, too right. Wood from the trees, forest from the trees. Oh, you can make it up. When it's your podcast, mate, you say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how it generally rolls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, mate, we might, we might wrap it up there or is there other stuff can, we should can talk you, Can you just fix one thing for me, please? Oh, like I yes. want one thing. So 
get your um, little wand out and go and fix this um, export of semen issue so that yeah. we can access to fine cross genetics <laughs> out in New Zealand into the ProBreed program. Yeah. Now that is a massive opportunity and there'll be far more, yeah, lots of sheep we've got here now that particularly on feet where we've done a lot of work that, yeah, are going to have a big impact on the game if we can if we can get them out of this country. Yeah, yeah if we can just get them in. Like, it's, it'll, be, like it'll, really, it'll really have our industry pumping if we can have – and it's that pressure thing again, Ferg, like being able to put some pressure on breeders in Australia with a tool that's come out of New Zealand that's had this extra work done on it, our, our feet um, issues will decrease rapidly. You know, farmers will respond if they've got access to the tools. Yeah, yeah. And an example to follow. Yeah, yeah. And I guess fortunately we've now got that funding from Animal Health Australia and AWI that uh, on the final game at least we're, we're putting some – we can replicate the work in Australia and so we'll soon be uh, – that's that's underway now. So that's going to be – that's very exciting, but it would be awesome if we could also leapfrog five, ten years of work here. I'll, yeah. Grab the grab the good work here, and and then go on. Whether it was is going to be, yeah, that would be just absolute icing on the cake. But uh. hats off to those guys for investing into the program, and just so grateful that that Next Gen Agri's got the link back over into Australia, where we can use utilize your um, combined knowledge to bring it on. Yeah, no, it's ex- exotic stuff, and I think yeah the. We need to capture some of the stories that are happening over here now with people who just yeah, sort of don't have to foot bar. There's a lot less lame sheep. There's a lot less sheep getting cull for feet, and and that's that's all. Well, we're only a decade in, really. It's not. It's only just getting started. So it's. Um, has, it, has it changed foot abscess food? Uh, hard to know. The paces that. Yeah, I don't know. That's a question that certainly a question we've got. As part of our current project in Australia, is is kind of trying to put some data around foot abscesses. As you know, it's one of those things that kind of is a bit sporadic and a bit of a curse of the good farmer when you got fat, when you got lots of twin bearing sheep and that are in good condition, which is what we would all tell every farmer to do. And then when they do that, foot abscesses, that then you predispose yourself to more foot abscesses generally. So. Um, yeah, we don't have the data, I suppose. What we have written into this, definitely in this current project, is to try and find out. But at the moment, we haven't sort of looked properly at that. The, um, so do you, do you drill into like um, stuff like AI and, and looking at genes and those sort of things in that process, Or how do you approach a problem like that when somebody puts it at you and says, here, fix this? Put abscesses, uh, I guess what we've... Our current approach is just to gather some phenotypes and see what we see if we can find some side effects is kind of the first thing. Like so, all of the work we've done with foot shape and stuff. Our first job is score the sheep up, go home. If we can find a significant side effect in there, then there's a good chance genes are at play. If it's just random, then then there's a good chance there's not genes at play. But I'm pretty confident that genetics are involved in everything. That's kind of my bent, but. Um, but yeah, so for foot abscess, it's start at first principles, just try and get some data and see if we can get enough power to do a half baked analysis to have a look and just see if, like, if there is, if there is genes at play, then we can work towards what we do with that information. Obviously, 
well, depends on the heritability, I suppose. If it was really, if it had really high heritability, then we could look to build a genomics based sort of, well, a genomics approach, a single step approach. But the, I guess the highly high likelihood is it's it would need lots of phenotyping of foot abscesses. So it's yeah, it's probably it might be on the wish list for a while um, because of its sporadic nature and and difficulty and yeah, like the chance of maybe able to convince somebody to purposefully run their sheep to get foot abscess is fairly remote and, and not even something I'm not even sure if I would suggest it if I could. Um, so yeah, I guess phenotypes drive phenotypes and pedigree drive genetics and and gathering that those phenotypes are going to be definitely tough and and I guess we're hopeful that if we if we take well we know the how it works I suppose if you haven't got an open skin lesion in the foot and you can't and there's no place for that foot abscess to form or no way for that bacteria to get in to, to start the abscess. So if we go back to, um, yeah, like we've got bulletproof feet or cast iron feet on them, so if there's no, if they're not getting OID or scald over on interdigital dermatitis or scald or clover scald or whatever you want to call it, um, if they haven't got that lesion, then you haven't got an open wound and then you haven't got bacteria or haven't got yes. risk. So, so I guess... That's where we're at. Maybe the immune, like I guess, what we're seeing, yeah, what we think we're seeing at least in in our foot rot selection is a change in the in the immune sort of response or the feet, either it's blood flow or what it is, or the immune system's better. However, that works. It would make what sense are, that that's is you wait an like not correlated. No, so yeah, um, no, not, well, phenotypically probably is, but genetically not. For yeah, foot okay. um, I don't even know if it's phenotypically. So yeah, no the. Um, we've done all that work, so we, yeah. But I think we're, yeah, we're at sort of. I don't know. We've we've kind of, in terms of climbing the mountain to understand feet, we've probably yeah, we walked across the flat. We've had a good look at the top. And we're starting to starting to go up the <laughs> the slope a bit, but there's a lot to learn. Um, and yeah, I think there's, um, yeah, there's several several things that we need to do from an industry point of view, and then there's an whole another set of information that we need. Just from a scientific point of view, to understand the biology, if we if we want to get to that level, yeah, if, yeah, yeah, seems like more important to me than seeing what's happening on Mars. Um, but but we probably won't get the same level of investment. Yeah. All right, mate, we'll wrap it up there. But yeah, uh, yeah, thanks very much for for all your support and and uh, and help over the years, and yeah, we'll continue our great relationship. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on to Head Shepherd and having you on, and and this will be a great chat for those out there having. I think it'll be out there early in the new year. People will be having a beer on the beach and catching a fish or two, hopefully, and, and listening to us clowns rattle on. <laughs> Absolute pleasure, man. Good luck to all the staff as well at Next Gen Agri. Got a great team. Thanks, mate. Thanks again to our mates at Heinegger who are proud world leaders in the manufacturing and supply professional sheep shearing and clipping equipment. They understand that their customers rely on the quality and performance of their products each and every day. Also, thanks to our friends at MSD Animal Health and Orflex. They offer an extensive livestock product portfolio focused on animal health and management, all backed up by exceptional service. Both of these companies are wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries, and we thank them for sponsoring the Head Shepherd podcast.